Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. God, we thank you that we have the opportunity to come together and to, uh, to be a church and to know that we are your children and we are uh, heard by you and known by you and loved by you. Lord, as we're opening up your word tonight, we pray that you would be honored by the honor that we give to it and that you would speak to us through it. And that your Holy Spirit would right now just prepare our hearts that we would not walk out unchanged, but that your word would uh, bear fruit in our lives and that it would impact us and that we would grow because of it. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ our King. Amen. So, if you weren't here last week, and even if you were here last week, it bears repeating. We're in the book of Revelation, and one of the key things to remember is the opening verse, which says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, things which must shortly take place. And we talked about this last week, that this is not the book of Revelations. This is the book of Revelation singular. And that is a huge deal because if you think of it as the book of Revelations, then all of a sudden the book is full of all these mysteries and it's up to us to figure it out. And what is the, who is the Antichrist? And what is the mark of the beast? And what does the number 666 mean? And what are the three frogs? And what's the prophet and the beast and the image of the beast? And what are all these things? And all of a sudden, it just becomes a massively confusing book. But if you realize that this book is actually just one thing, and that is the revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ, then it becomes vastly simpler because all of a sudden, what is this book about? It's about Jesus Christ. And I'm not that smart of a person, but I can wrap my head around Jesus Christ a lot uh, simpler and a lot easier than I can around figuring out all the mysteries of everything else because Jesus Christ has revealed himself to me. He said, hey, I came to earth. I lived as a man. I died. I took away your sins. I'm going to bring you into eternal life. And I can say, okay. Cool. There's a couple parts there that I don't fully have figured out, but that's okay because you obviously do. So, okay. But the revelation of Jesus Christ is what we're studying. We're reading a book where Jesus Christ says, okay, here's how I'm going to reveal myself to the world. Here's how I'm going to show myself the final time. And so with that, the book becomes much simpler to understand. And it's important that we, that we keep that in mind because people sometimes approach this book like, oh, you can't understand it. Well, you may not understand every specific thing, and there will be parts of this book as we're reading where I'll tell you, I have no idea exactly what that means. But I do know exactly what it means in the sense of, I understand that anything I read in this book is going to be about Jesus Christ glorifying himself. Okay? The other thing is that there's a blessing promised to any person who reads this book. So if you're here, understand that the Lord will bless you for it. And that's not, you, you know, I don't know, he doesn't tell you what the blessing is. It's kind of like you get a surprise package, right? But whatever it is, he will give it to you for reading this book and paying attention to it. And then lastly, we talked about last week, in chapter 1, verse 19, we get an outline of the book where John has a vision of Jesus Christ and Jesus says to him in verse 19 of chapter 1, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And so chapter 1 is the things which John has seen. He's bringing us up to speed. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are. And then chapter 4, where we begin tonight, opens up with the phrase, after these things. And in Greek, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, it's actually the exact same phrase as chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus said, write things that will take place after this. And then chapter 4, John says, after this. And so he's giving us an indication. We're going to, tonight, we'll kind of, it'll feel like a Scott Murphy introduction, because we'll get through verse 1, and then we'll pause for a while, 
And then we'll finish up chapter 4, and then I'll look at chapter 5 and say, um, yeah, we'll just do 5 real briefly. Um, but, but we are going to park here, because it's, it's, it could be a subtle detail, but it's an important point where we just need to kind of pause and understand a, a doctrine that the Scripture teaches that we need to be aware of. So chapter 4, verse 1, says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must, must take place after this. So after these things, after what things? Well, in the most specific context, after the letters to the churches that John has just written. Okay, the Holy Spirit gave him seven letters for seven churches, and we talked about last week, these are literal historical churches. They were a literal specific message for these churches, but they're also given to us to understand in a broader context that they do apply to every believer. There's something for every Christian to learn from these. But there's also an idea uh, in chapters 2 and 3 that what John is describing in the letters to the churches is, if you will, an age of the church. Okay, It's, it's sort of an era where the Holy Spirit's movement on earth is primarily through the church. And so I want us to kind of just look at that tonight and, and specifically understand that in the context of where does that then put Christians during the Great Tribulation. So we are going to be just hopping all over, really. But uh, if you're not comfortable flipping to different passages, I'll read everything that you need to hear. But if you are comfortable flipping and trying to get to where we're at, it would be, I think, helpful to read the Word of God in your own Bible, see it, connect the dots. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And when you're there, we're going to start in verse 16. We'll back up and just in, in verse 13, Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, says, I don't want you to be ignorant, and specifically about the end times. But in verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul says, I want you to understand something, and I don't want you to be ignorant about this. And that is that at some point in time, the Lord is going to come down and we will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds. The Lord is going to come down and bring us up to heaven. And the word he uses for caught up there is the Greek word harpazo, which is where we get our word harpoon. So there's the idea of the Lord is going to spear us and pull us up. Okay. Now this is different than when the Lord comes back at the end of the book of Revelation. Because in that situation, the Lord actually comes all the way down to earth and sets up his kingdom on earth. So Paul's telling us that there's a point in time at which the Lord comes, kind of meets us halfway, if you will, gets in for you know, a close shot with his harpoon, grabs us, and then goes back up to heaven. So this is, if you will, the idea of what people call the rapture, or the word rapturus, which means uh, sort of the taking away. So he says this is going to come. The Lord is going to come and rapture the church. He's going to come and take away the church. Now then the question becomes, okay, what exactly, why exactly, when exactly, and, and how does this work? Okay, so we want to understand the context of, again, and it's always important, 
We're studying Revelation, singular. This book is about Jesus Christ. This book is not about us, okay? So flip over, again, if, if you're good with it, to Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9, we really have uh, probably, I'd say probably the most significant prophecy of the Old Testament, just because it's so complete, so thorough, so precise, and because it actually tells us that basically when this prophecy is fulfilled, all prophecy is going to be wrapped up, okay? So in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has had a vision, he's praying for clarification, and then an angel comes to reveal to him more details. And in chapter 9, starting in verse 24, the angel is speaking, and he says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks. And understand, uh, some translations actually will translate it 77s, because to a Jewish culture, a week was not exclusively seven days. You could have a week of years, and actually their calendar was set up in seven-year increments. And so you, could have, uh, so you could have periods identified as weeks that were other than days. And what the angel is saying is basically there are 70 periods of seven years that are determined for your people. Who's that? The Jewish people. For your holy city. Who's that? The city of Jerusalem. To finish the transgression and make an end of sins, to wipe out evil on the earth, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to kind of bring it all to completion, and to anoint the most holy. To do what? To bring about the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Daniel is given a, a vision where the Lord says, okay, there's 70 periods of seven years. And then the Lord goes on and says, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the streets shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, this, we're not going to go into it too much tonight. This is one of the most specific prophecies in all of Scripture. Because he says there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks. And if a week is a period of seven years, that's 483 years. From when? From the command to go forth to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. You can track the historical dates of when Cyrus the king of Persia gave a command to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And 483 years later to the day happens to be what we know as Palm Sunday. It's a very specific prophecy where the Lord said, okay, from the time this first command goes out until the time the Messiah comes, it's going to be 483 years, 69 of those weeks, if you will. Which leaves, what? One final week or one final seven and then he says, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, he's referencing the 69 because he called them the 7 and the 62. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So, at the end of those period, at the end of that 483 years, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. The Messiah was killed, but not because of his own sins. Okay, this prophecy is very specific. And then it says, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the Messiah will be cut off, and then the city, Jerusalem, will be destroyed. And the sanctuary, more specifically, the temple, will be destroyed. What happened? The Roman army came in in 70 AD and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so at that point, what happened is the 70 weeks, if you will, of Daniel paused. 
So there's 69 weeks, and then there's a pause. And he says, the people of the prince who is to come are going to burn the city. So there's a prince coming that, who we'll get to in a few weeks, known as the Antichrist. He's coming. And he's going to somehow be part of a revived Roman Empire. But he's, his people, the Romans, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then verse 27, then he, that's the prince, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So stay with me here. The prince who is to come, the Antichrist, is going to make a covenant with many for one week, which is what? One seven-year period. The Antichrist will rise to power as a world leader who brings world peace in the form of a seven-year treaty. And when that treaty is signed, that's the start date for the final week, the final seven-year period. Okay? And that will be the final seven. From that point on, at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus Christ is going to come back to earth. He's going to set up the millennial kingdom. Satan will be bound. But the final seven of Daniel's prophecy will start when the Antichrist signs a global peace treaty for seven years. Okay? So, understand, this is, this is a speci very specific prophecy, but there's a couple things that are really important in this. And the first is this. In verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. This is a prophecy specifically for the Jewish people and specifically for the city of Jerusalem. This is not a prophecy for the church. And we've talked about it you know, last year in Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, really throughout Scripture. This, the Lord is very clear. He has made specific promises to the nation of Israel. And the church has not replaced the nation of Israel. Okay? And so the Lord said, this is a prophecy for the Jewish people and for the city of Jerusalem to bring an end to all sin. So this prophecy about the 70 weeks, and, and then specifically as we're looking at it, we need to realize this, that the Great Tribulation, as we know it, that seven-year period, that final seven, is not for the church. It's not for the sake of purifying the church. It's not for the sake of, of really you know, getting the church ready for the coming of Christ. It's for the sake of Daniel's people and his holy city and the end of sins. So the Great Tribulation is not a period that the Lord has designated for the church. Now, I told you we're going to flip a couple more times. Matthew, chapter 24. And then Jesus, verse 1. I know it's not fair that I bookmarked mine ahead of times, but it's okay. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem at the temple. And the disciples say, Look how incredible this temple is. And Jesus says, It's not going to last. There's not going to be one stone left on another. And the disciples ask him, what they think is then one question, but it's actually three separate questions. They say, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And Jesus proceeds to answer their questions, okay? But understand that the disciples at the time, and to their credit, 
you know, they were trying to learn things, but not so much to their credit. They'd already demonstrated at this point that they weren't so hot at actually listening to Jesus. They didn't realize he was actually going to die at this point, right? And so, you know, curiosity, 9 out of 10. Insight, you know, 4 out of 10, maybe. Um, so Jesus answers their question about when the fall of Jerusalem will be and when the end of the age will be and when his coming will be. But he says, and I want us to just kind of zero in here on verse uh, 36, of that day and hour, and he's talking about his return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Jesus here lays out something that people sometimes call the doctrine of eminence, which is this. You don't know when I'm coming back. And therefore, you need to always be living as if it could be right now. Okay? Because understand this. I mean, we all can kind of wrap our heads around this. If there's a test that's due on Monday morning, when do you really need to be ready? Monday morning, right? When do you really need to quit the, leave the party? Well, Monday morning, right? Like, if there's a deadline, we'll make the deadline, but we'll cut it as close as we can. Jesus did not want us to live life on earth as if, hey, guess what? Got a couple more days, and then I'll get serious with the Lord. He wanted us to live as though he could come back at any second. And so we establish here what's called the doctrine of eminence, which is that Jesus could come for us at any time. Now, as we look at these passages all together, and I want to be really clear, there are a lot of Christians in the world who look at the Word of God and, do not, and come to a different conclusion than what I'm about to say. And that's okay. This is not a massive hill to die on, but I think it's important, though, it's important enough to spend time on because I do believe that it creates the proper sense of urgency in our hearts that the Lord is trying to establish. So understand sort of the pieces, if you will. Thessalonians tells us that the Lord's going to come with a shout and will be caught up in the air. Daniel tells us that the great tribulation is specifically for the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem, and bringing an end to sin. And then Jesus tells us that nobody knows when he's coming. Now, here's the thing. Different Christians disagree on when exactly this rapture is going to take place. Some people say it's at the end of the Great Tribulation, which truthfully, I would respectfully say it makes absolutely zero sense. Some people say it's in the middle, which I would say I kind of understand where you're coming from, but I still don't agree with it because um, if nobody knows the day or the hour, then understand if the beginning of the final seven is the mark of a treaty, then as soon as I see that treaty on the news... Just hit go. And I'm, and I'm counting down, right? And, and, you know, Daniel even talks about there's, you know, 1,290 days after the, he, he specifies it, and uh, I forget exactly how he lays it out, but, you know, there's a period of days and then a second period of days, and basically here's where it gets really bad and here's where it gets extra bad. If we're watching for the Lord to come back, and our first goal is to watch for the rise of the Antichrist, then as soon as we see him come, then we can start getting ready. Then we can prepare. But I believe the best 
interpretation of the scripture is to understand that there is what's going to be called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. That before the great tribulation begins, all Christians are going to be pulled out of the earth by the Lord. And even more specifically, if you wanted to get into 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit is holding back the spirit of Antichrist, and he will do so until he's taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit at some point will be removed from the way in which he works in the church today. But we're also told that the Holy Spirit will never leave us or forsake us. And so I believe that if the Holy Spirit is going to be removed from earth, then we will also be removed from earth. Okay? And this is important. Again, it's not a massive hill to die on, but it is important because this book is about what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. If I believe that the Antichrist comes first and then three and a half years from that Jesus comes, then what am I looking for? I'm looking for the Antichrist. And it's really important that I stay very on top of, you know, Mediterranean politics, because that's where he'll come from, and, and who's rising, and oh, you know, uh, <clears throat> what do you think? Think it's him or not, right? Oh, have you ever counted the letters in his name, or have you found the significance of the sixth letter in his sixth name? You know what that means, don't you? And you can get into all these weird things, because all of a sudden this becomes about revelations. But if Jesus Christ is going to pull the church out before the Great Tribulation starts, then what are we looking for? We're looking for Jesus. And so that's where I believe very strongly that a, a belief in a pre-tribulation rapture is not only the most consistent view of Scripture, but also the view that most keeps our hearts aligned with Scripture. Because it causes us to live with urgency and say, yes, we don't panic about what will come, but yes, we live with urgency because we don't want anybody else to have to get stuck down here. Right? If we get to go, that doesn't mean we get to be slobs in our ministry. It means we say, wow, I want to make sure nobody else I know is stuck down here. But it also keeps our focus on Jesus, not on what are we getting done, not on who are the bad guys, not on what's the, what's the dynamic. Our focus is on who is Jesus and is he coming back and am I ready to meet him. And that's what the Lord told us to do. He said to watch. Watch for his coming. Don't watch for the enemy's coming. You don't need to worry about the enemy. Jesus will take care of that. But our goal is to stay focused on the Lord. And so John, I believe he's transitioning here in Revelation into describing the Great Tribulation. And I believe that and also in part because chapters 2 and 3, it's all about, hey, here's the church, here's for the church, for this church, right to this church, right to this church. And now, starting chapter 4, the word church does not appear in the book of Revelation until the very end, where Jesus says, hey, I want you to send this letter to the churches. So as John's describing all these things, he never talks about how this is impacting the church. And understand, there will still be people who get saved through the Great Tribulation. We'll see there's a massive harvest of souls. You know, potentially a billion people, potentially more, I don't know, are going to get saved and come to know Jesus Christ through this. But it will be in a different capacity because they will still be experiencing the judgment of God in their, in their world as they're living through it. Okay, now they'll receive a specific blessing from the Lord for enduring, but they'll also go through hard times because they refuse to listen. Okay, and so that's where I believe that the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture is most consistent with Scripture. It's most consistent with what we see of the character of God throughout the Old Testament. Whenever he deals out judgment on a place, he always pulls out his people first. Okay, but, so chapter 4, verse 1, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place immediately after this. 
And so now we're going to see what takes place after these things. After, if you will, the church age is over, and now the final week for the Jewish people is brought into play. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So John hears a voice say, come on up. The next thing he knows, he's on up. And he says, I saw a throne, and one who sat on the throne, and he who sat on the throne was like a jasper and a sardius stone. I was listening to a pastor talk about this this week, and he said, have you ever tried to describe something with just one stone? Like, what was the concert like? Oh, dude, it was like a ruby. Like, okay, cool, you know? Like, uh, how, how did the date go? Oh, man, it was like, it was turquoise, you know? Like, it was, it was something else. Like, John is, he sees the Lord seated in glory, and he's like, I don't know, it was, it was just kind of like a, a stone, you know, like, like a jewel that was different, but pretty awesome. You know, John, in the presence of God, John does not have a lot of big, long descriptors, right? But what he knows is, I'm in the presence of the Lord. It's also really interesting, and I like this. Uh, somebody pointed this out to me several years ago. That there's a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. There's a green rainbow around the throne of God. And you say, who on earth cares? And I didn't either until somebody explained this to me. And that is this. That's impossible with any of the laws of physics or electromagnetic fields that we understand today. Green rainbows, you, don't, you can't have a solid green rainbow. It doesn't happen. It's not actually physically possible on earth. Which means that heaven is not bound by the laws of earth. Okay? So understand this. We get, we get all obsessed sometimes, and you hear people say the stupidest things about, like, what is heaven like? And they try and pick something they enjoy here or something that maybe, you know, to them is symbolic of, like, innocence and just kind of expand it. You know, like, heaven is just, like, puppies everywhere or it's, you know, it's, it's just heart music. or like, They just come up with the weirdest things, truthfully. And you just listen. You're like, I have never heard anything that ridiculous in my life, but I'm going to keep smiling. That's not what heaven is like. Heaven doesn't have the same laws of physics as we have. Because God is not bound by, what he, by the earth that he put us into. God is not limited by our imaginations. And so understand, when we talk about seeing heaven, this is important. This is really important, especially if this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this book is about us being anxious to meet the Lord. Don't worry about what's it going to be like. And am I going to know my friends, or am I going to, you know, uh, am I going to see this person, or am I going to experience this? You're going to be in the presence of God. And Scripture says, in His presence is fullness of joy. Anything that ever brought you joy on earth was partial. It was always tainted, somehow, right? Either by your selfishness, or the object's corruptedness, or it's just even ability to wear down and corrode. Nothing has ever been pure joy on earth. Everything wears out. The best feeling, the best, you know, the best night, the best whatever, the best relationship, and they all fade and wear out sooner or later. And sometimes they become, you know, in, in a spiritual context, they sometimes become richer, but the physical side is always wearing down. John gets to heaven and sees this world where it's, it's just like they're all new rules. The rules for how light works are different. 
Okay, we don't even really understand how light works here. But John is just, just in that one little sentence, you realize, okay, wait a second. Whatever heaven is going to be is beyond my ability, not to comprehend, to imagine. Heaven is beyond our ability to even think. It says in Scripture that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard and heart hasn't even known how wonderful it's going to be. So don't worry when you think about heaven. Like, oh, is this going to be there? Right? Rejoice in, I know it will be there. God. John is giving us a description of heaven, and he just starts, you know, he doesn't say, it wasn't a lot of sunflowers. It wasn't, you know, a, a really bright blue sky. I saw a throne, and I saw God on the throne. And that's his first thing that he wants us to make sure we understand about heaven, is that God is there. And that is incredible. Okay? And then he goes on. And he says, verse 4, around the throne, there were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. Truth be told, nobody knows exactly who the 24 elders are. Okay? Some people think they might represent the church. Uh, could be. Totally could be. But we just know that there's 24 elders who have crowns and thrones, and they're sitting around the throne of God. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. So God's chair talks. Now, like, you know, the place where God rests is putting out power. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We talked about this last week. The seven spirits of God is a reference back to Isaiah 11, which basically is just another expression for, like, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So John sees God and realizes that in the... In the presence of God is the fullness of the Spirit of God. Verse 6, he says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. So I don't know if that's like crystal that's still like going up and down like waves or what. I, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. But John is trying to give us ideas, but he's falling short because we don't have the capacity. But what we know is that the Lord is there. And in the midst of the throne... And around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So, he sees four Massive angelic beings. Okay, these are similar to what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1. They're not quite the same. They appear to be really similar to what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. They might be the same. I don't know. Um, and some people, might, there's, some people get a lot of symbolism and meaning out of the lion and the ox and the eagle and the man. There's probably some symbolism there, but, you know, if you just read it straightforwardly, there's four living creatures. One of them's got a face like a lion, one of them's got a face like an eagle, one of them's got a face like an ox, and one of them's got a face like a man. And I'm already lost, so it's like, I don't, you don't need to lose me anymore with what each angel represents there. But they're full of eyes around and within. I don't know how John knows that they have eyes inside their body, but he somehow does, or else he's saying that they have eyes that can actually like see within, which, you know, be a little interesting to be in the presence of a being who you realize can actually see inside you and see your thoughts if that's what he's describing i don't know and they have six wings and they don't rest day or night saying holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and is to come 
Now, whenever we see these things, remember, we're in the presence of the Lord at this point when we'll get to see these guys. So we're not going to be like, in the presence of the Lord, there's no imperfection. There's, there's just the beauty of God's presence. And so we're not going to look at these and say, like, that is a weird-looking thing right there. Okay? I don't know what God was thinking when he designed that. Like, that's just that's four too many wings, and that is way too many eyeballs. No, it's going to be like, wow. I wouldn't have even imagined making something that incredible. But that's, like, that's legit. Like, that's, that's intense stuff right there. That's really cool. Okay? So these things... They're full of eyes. They're full of wings. They can basically go anywhere, see anything. They have all kinds of power. And they have a job that they have never gotten tired of, and that is to praise the Lord. John is, I mean, try and imagine being John, and you're just in the midst of more power than you can comprehend. Right? The throne of God is sending out thunder and lightning and voices. And you're watching these four creatures, and you realize these four, these four creatures do one thing, and that is they praise the Lord. That's kind of intense. And, it, and, it, and if you're not careful, you can think of it and be like, that sounds a little boring, right? Like, like it's, it's one sentence, you know? And if you're, you're not, you're kind of like, wow, that would get a little repetitive. And it does if you're corrupted. One of the things I love, there's an author named G.K. Chesterton, wrote a book called Orthodoxy years ago. And he said, one of the marks of being youthful is that you delight in repetition. He said, kids love to hear the same joke over and over and over again. Adults can't handle it. Adults are actually the ones who are weaker than the children, in effect, if you will. Because they just like, they need something new. They're not satisfied, right? It's not like, oh my gosh, I've never understood the chicken crossed the road. Say it again. Come on, come on, come on. One more time, one more time. He crossed the road. <laughs> like it just, it, it gets old for us. But to a child, it's the funniest thing in the world. Because a child understands joy without the corruption of the world always pushing it for you need something else. And you're not satisfied yet. But to be in the presence of God is to experience fullness of joy, which means repetition of purity is never going to wear us out. Okay? And the Lord, I, there's, I read this years ago, somebody said, understand that in, a, in essence, the Lord is almost younger than we are. We think of the Lord as an old guy sometimes. But what is old? Old is wearing out, right? Old is, old is when, you know, you creak going down and you creak going up. The Lord doesn't do that. The Lord is, is in the fullness of all of his power, which by any definition, if you will, means it kind of, and it's a little bit abstract, and I understand that. But in effect, the Lord is young. The Lord delights in Joyful things. He delights in the praise that he deserves over and over again. And these creatures in his presence delight to give it to him over and over again. And so heaven will not be a boring place. Okay? Heaven will be a place where we are so satisfied that we can't ever get bored. There's a difference. And then verse 9, he says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So the four creatures never get tired of praising the Lord. And every time the four creatures praise the Lord, the 24 elders, be they the church or, or something else, 
say, oh yeah, let's do it too, right? Let's worship the Lord too. Like, we get another chance. Let's do it again. Come on, baby. And they do it too. Because the worship of the Lord never gets old. And so chapter 5, he goes on. He says, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So John is he's in his vision, and he sees in the right hand of the Lord a scroll that's sealed up with seven seals. Picture like seven wax seals on a letter. And the Lord says, who's worthy to open this one up? And in effect, what it is, is basically the title deed to earth. Okay? And basically, the right of redemption to earth. Because when Adam sinned in the garden, control of the earth transferred over to Satan. Satan received a place to do his work. And that's the earth. And the Lord has been in the process of taking it back ever since then. But John has the vision where the Lord says, okay, who's worthy to take this? Who is, who is capable, competent, strong enough, and righteous enough to take this earth back from Satan? To open the title and say, yeah, I own it. And nobody's able to. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, or under the earth, no person alive or dead is worthy. And so John says, verse 4, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John's having this vision and it's like, wow, are we just, are we damned to be stuck in our sins for forever? Right? Like, like that, the depression of, are we stuck in what we've got here forever? Verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. John starts to weep, and one of the elders says, hey, don't weep. No, no. There is one. There is the lion who is totally capable. He has prevailed. He is ready. He is willing. And John says, verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So this is, this is subtle, but this is, I think, very, very important for the book of Revelation. The, the elder tells John, hey, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. And John looks and he says, I saw a lamb. Now, in both situations, they're describing Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus describes himself as a lion and as a lamb. And it's been said, you know, the remarkable thing about that is not that he's a lion and a lamb. It's that he's actually the lion with all of his teeth and the lamb at the same time. He's not a half a lion and a lamb. He's not this, you know mostly nice guy with some good muscles. He's a full lion and a full lamb. And the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Seven, the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. Again, the lamb, Jesus Christ, is full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has seven horns, which in, in, in prophecy speak of power. And seven speaks of completion. So he has the fullness of power, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But understand this. The elder says, hey, there's a lion who's worthy to take it over. And John looks and he sees a lamb ready to take it over. And when Revelation talks about the wrath of God, it talks about the wrath of the lamb. 
Okay, and this is important because as we read the book of Revelation, if you're not careful, you can read it fast and think, wow, God is just like in this, like, I've had it up to here moment. You know, I'm through. I'm sick of all this perversion. I'm sick of, I've just had it up to here. I'm done. And he's just flying off the handle. But understand this. God is fully lion and fully lamb. If he was going to pour out judgment on the earth, which part of his personality do you think he would choose to do it with? A lion seems a lot more wrathful, a lot more competent for dealing in judgment. You know, kind of like if you got to get a spanking, you want it from dad or you want it from mom, right? You want it from the lion or the lamb? Jesus, when he judges the earth, describes it as the wrath of the lamb. Okay? So even in the judgment of God, there is still the gentleness of God. God never loses self-control in his judgment of the earth. And actually, if you look at Revelation, really the vast majority of the judgments are not God pouring something out. They're God pulling something back. It's not God saying, okay, you want, you want some pain? I'll show you some pain. It's God saying, you know what? You've said for thousands of years now you didn't want me. So I'll just kind of step back this layer of protection that I've always given you. And then I'll step back this layer of protection that I've always given you. And I'll step back this layer of protection and I'll make sure that an angel flies throughout the whole earth and declares the gospel so every person who's still alive is going to hear the gospel. But if you still refuse to listen, I'll walk back this layer. As we're reading this book, we've got to understand the judgment of God is still always mixed with the gentleness of God. And the judgment of God, we talked about this, what, two Sundays ago when we were going through Ezekiel 38. God never loses the individual when he's judging the nation. He never gets going, gets on a roll and says, oh, yeah, ouch, um, bummer. He always, always knows exactly what he's doing. He's got seven horns and seven eyes. He has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of power. He has everything he needs to judge the earth, but he also has all the wisdom and the discernment and the self-control to make sure that it is perfectly done. Okay? So as we get into really chapter 6, we're going to watch the judgment of the earth begin to unfold. But understand this. That it's not the lion roaring because he's mad. It's the lamb demonstrating his power. Like a lamb. And it is the wrath of God because the power of God is so intense. But it is also the wrath of the lamb. So verse 8. And we're going to wrap up chapter 5. Like I said, real briefly here. Now, when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So, the 24 elders, they have golden bowls full of incense. And what is the incense? It's the prayers of the saints. And they pour it out to the Lord. And so what is it? It's the prayers of Christians are poured out in praise to the Lord to say, hey, you are totally worthy to take this worth, to take this world back. So John watches, he, it, so what's cool is he gets to see basically the church praise the Lord. And then verse 11, 
He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He looks and he sees now the angelic host praising the Lord. Because there's an understanding here, it is good for God to, to redeem the earth. It is good for God to bring an end to sin. And we are praising the Lord for it here. And then verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. John says, pay attention to this. He says, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and, on the, uh, and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. Now think about this for a second. Jesus in his earthly ministry, the religious leader said, hey, tell the people to stop praising you. And Jesus said, if they are quiet, the rocks will cry out. The rocks are so full of the ripple effects of my glory that they will scream out my praises if people stop. And John in his vision of heaven, gets to watch the church praise the Lord. He gets to watch the angelic host praise the Lord. And he actually gets to watch the earth praise the Lord. The earth is tired of being cursed. And, and it's, how does it work? I have no idea, okay? I'm not going to pretend I do. But John, imagine this though. He gets to watch the earth giving glory to God. Think about, okay, it's a, I mean, our world is very cursed by sin. But our world is actually still really beautiful, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty groovy place to live. I kind of like it. It's, it's, you know, it's not much, but it's home. Everything we know about the earth right now is still the effect of God's curse, right? Mountains, you like mountains? I think mountains are cool. You know mountains are? The result of God's judgment with a flood. You think the Grand Canyon is cool? You know what it is? It's the ripple effects of God's judgment through a flood. You like the Great Lakes? You know what they are? Ripple effect of God's judgment through a flood. You think volcanoes are cool? I think they are too. You know what they are? They're the ripple effects of God's judgment on the earth with a flood. Everything that we define as, as beautiful and powerful on earth is still the result of the curse. So think about for a second. If the earth right now is screaming out the praises of God, what is it like when there's no curse? What is it like? What would it have been like in Eden when earth is just like dripping out the glory of God? John gets to watch the church praise the Lord and the angels praise the Lord and actually the earth and the creatures in the earth praise the Lord in some form. I have no idea, like I said. But understand this again. John's vision is all about what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. John tells us really nothing about heaven except I saw God and I saw everything worshiping God because he is totally worthy of being worshiped and it never gets old. It never, it never wears out. We never get tired of it because it's so full. There's so much there. And so as we get in the next several weeks, okay, Revelation's kind of a heavy book. No, no lie. Okay, but understand what it's about. It's about Jesus Christ, and he's incredible. 
And the invitation that he gives to every single one of us is the same invitation he gives to every other person in the world. And that is, hey, you can, you can be part of this. You can be part of praising me forever. You can be part of the fullness of joy. If you want to experience joy fully, you can have that. If you want to know what it's like to know Jesus Christ, you can have that. And so we are, we're getting into this book, but we need to understand that the, the comfort of this book Right? As we talk about the judgment of God, we're still talking about the wrath of the Lamb. As we talk about all the things that are going to come, and there's a lot of crazy things that are going to come in the next few weeks, we're still talking about, you know, the Lamb is worthy and the world is ready. And the Lamb says, hey, you know, John, the Lord says, who's worthy? And there's nobody there. And John weeps, and they say, no, no, wait, wait, there's a lion coming. And John looks, and the Lamb walks up. He's like, yep, this is my job. It's, it's my time, this is my role, this is, what I'm, this is what I'm ready to do. And in that moment, everything John can see says, praise the Lord. We are so ready to have sin be done with. We are so ready to have death and disease and sickness and oppression and perversion be done with. We are so ready to just get to rest in the presence of the Lord. Right? That's what John's giving us. So next week, the lamb is actually going to start opening up that seal, the seals of that scroll. And basically what you're going to have is seven seals. The seventh seal, they each kind of unleash a wave of judgment. The seventh seal unleashes seven trumpets of judgment. And then the seventh trumpet will unleash seven bowls of judgment. Okay, so it's a, it's a pattern. We'll get to see the way John sets it up for us. But we keep moving through. But remember this, the lion is worthy, but the lamb is judging the world. So Lord, thank you for your word. God, we are so excited to know that we can someday join with John and all the other believers who have gone ahead of us and, and the four living creatures, whatever they look like, and the 24 elders, whoever they are, and we can rejoice in your presence. We can't wait. But Lord, you've also left us here with a mission and a call, and we want to be faithful in that while we are waiting. And so we pray that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, with your power, that you would stir up in our hearts a sense of urgency to be watching for you, but to also seek to be effective here. God, we want to be a part of your plan of redemption for this world. While the offer stands, we want to invite as many people as possible to come to know you. And so we pray that you would give us a spirit of boldness, a spirit of willingness to take the, take the plunge of the awkward conversations Take the opportunities that you present us. God, help us to live like people on mission, people whose job is to snatch souls from hell. We want to be an annoyance to our enemy and a blessing to you. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lion and the Lamb. Amen.